This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to The Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. She's Mia, I'm Scott, and today we're looking at Chapter 4, Eddard 1 of A Game of Thrones. Here is the chapter summary according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. King Robert Baratheon arrives with his party at Winterfell, where he offers Lord Eddard Stark the position of Hand of the King, and proposes a betrothal between Eddard's daughter, Sansa, and his own son, Crown Prince Joffrey. So, the theme of this week's episode will be homosociality and specifically um, the representation of adult male friendship and love between Ned and Robert. Uh, This is perhaps the best opportunity we will have to discuss Ned and Robert's friendship before it becomes increasingly tense and strained as they head south during Ned's tenure as Hand. And it's also an opportunity for us to discuss intimacy between men and how social contexts impact how this intimacy can be both expressed and understood. So this chapter was really... uh, I'm going to say it's my favourite reread thus far of the book, which is not what I was expecting. Um, So when I was reading it, I was really interested in this um, representation of intimacy between um, Robert and Ned. And it was not how I remembered it because I was very much remembering the show. And I really enjoy um, the acting and directing choices of the show. I think they're good. But there's just so much richness and complexity that we get in this chapter um, that I'm really looking forward to unpacking. So... In this chapter, I'm interested in homosociality as queer intimacy and how love between men, uh, whether between brothers or friends or lovers, is permitted through particular context-dependent social scripts. So I'm going to begin um, with a a quote from Eve Sedgwick uh, from the book Between Men, English Literature and Male Homosocial Desire. So Sedgwick writes, homosocial desire is a kind of oxymoron. Homosocial is a word occasionally used in history and social sciences where it describes social bonds between persons of the same sex. It is a neologism, obviously formed by analogy with homosexual, and just as obviously meant to be distinguished from homosexual. In fact, it is applied to such activities as male bonding, which may, as in our society, be characterised by intense homophobia, fear and hatred of homosexuality. To draw the homosocial back to the orbit of desire of the potentially erotic, then, is to hypothesize the potential unbrokenness of a continuum between homosocial and homosexual, a continuum whose visibility for men in our society is radically disrupted. So Sedgwick is someone that um, I will be coming back to in future episodes uh, more in depth, Uh, but for today's episode, I'm actually going to return to Foucault, uh, and specifically an essay, Friendship as a Way of Life, Um, which is an interview between Foucault and the French gay magazine Guépier, which was published a few years before um, Between Men was published. It was published in 1981 and was translated to English by John Johnston. So Foucault writes, As far back as I remember, to want guys or garçons was to want relations with guys. That has always been important for me, not necessarily in the form of a couple, but as a matter of existence. How is it possible for men to be together? 
to live together, to share their time, their meals, their room, their leisure, their grief, their knowledge, their confidences. What is it to be naked among men, outside of the institutional relations, family, profession, and obligatory camaraderie? It's a desire, an uneasiness, a desire in uneasiness that exists among a lot of people. So uh, this essay is really quite useful uh, for this particular chapter because it really kind of delves into these complexities that um, Cedric then uh, identifies in that idea of a continuum between homosociality and homosexuality. Um, and in particular, Foucault is interested in how so, um, homosociality is mediated through the institutionalization of relationships. So, for example, through the form of marriage and how something like marriage or, you know, he also mentions things like work and stuff like that, um, basically provide a script for behavior. And that script is for um, normalized and externally comprehensible behavior. Um, but in the context of something like Ned and Robert, this idea of friendship, and I'm going to kind of unpack what I think their relationship is in a little bit more depth as we go through this, um, that idea of friendship doesn't really have a script anymore. It has previously, uh, and it will in the future when their relationship is codified in a professional capacity. But currently, it's a bit awkward. <laughs> it's really intimate, but it's very awkward because there's not um, the context for them to be able to just love each other as men without these other kind of things to uphold that, like um, marriage or um, like the actual act of sex between them or war, as we'll mention, or profession or any of those kind of things, or being brothers as they were um, sort of when they were younger. Yeah, and one of the ways in which um, this this uh, boundary keeping of homosociality and culture is reinforced is through popular culture, um, as well as, um, I mean, prominently in cinema specifically. Uh, it's the thing that comes to my mind immediately when we talk about friendship between men um, and how it's presented in our culture. I mean, there's whole subgenres basically devoted to it uh, in the form of, you know, bromances and lad flicks and so forth. And it might be odd to to bring a series like A Song of Ice and Fire into conversation with such, you know, comedic texts. Um, one thing about Game of Thrones is it's not comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> they are definitely different genres. Um, which deploy these these representations in for widely different purposes. Um, so, male friendship, male intimacy as material for comedy versus the the makings of a tragedy here. So, but with that said, I do feel like there are elements that do carry across genres uh, and carry into this particular story. Um, and I think given the context in which Martin was writing his first book, it's perhaps not surprising which elements do actually crop up, particularly in the characterization of Robert. I think Robert in particular demonstrates some laddish qualities, which he has not outgrown. He is, of course, not a lad, certainly not anymore. If anything, he demonstrates some of the yearnings that, um, you know, lad flicks tend to portray their protagonists as having before they ultimately disavow that laddism ambivalently um, so 
what is laddism? What is lad? Uh, laddism is a specific performance of masculinity that emerged in in the early 90s, particularly in the United Kingdom and the United States, which means it was in the culture uh, when when Martin was writing uh, a Game of Thrones. So the new lad had a a post-feminist outlook that was defiant in its hedonism and purposeful in its transgressions of decency norms. Uh, the new lad uh, reveled in homosocial bonding with other men, predatory and objectifying approaches to women, and, you know, fixation on drinking and football and sex. But what set the new lad apart from, you know, traditional forms of masculinity and patriarchal values is that the new lad also rallied against monogamy and marriage and being a family provider. So um, for those of you who like your sitcoms, obviously Barney Stinson is pretty quintessential when it comes to to the new lad, Barney Stinson in How I Met Your Mother. So King Robert, uh, he has a laddish qualities, but he has more in common with the protagonist of a lad flick in its first act. These films, they tend to to focus on 30-something-year-old men who initially crave a return to their hedonistic, you know, past or prime, but eventually let it go. Obviously, uh, Robert doesn't get that arc. He he dies. (laughs) He dies before he gets to do any of that introspective um, thinking. But one trope that did strike me as particularly relevant to Robert's characterization is one that David Hanson Miller and Rosalind Gill identify in Ladflix, which is the boys gone wild trope. So the protagonist yearns for those days of boyish excess while chafing under the constraints of domesticity and or a stagnated career. Here we have King Robert, very clearly. He's clearly in a bad marriage with Cersei. You know, the others take my wife. He's fairly open about sleeping around, as we'll find out. And, you know, we will also see he's not exactly hands-on with raising his children either. Meanwhile, you know, the reality of ruling the Seven Kingdoms has very clearly uh, worn him down. Quote, I swear to you, sitting a throne is a thousand times harder than winning one. Laws are a tedious business, and counting coppers is worse. And the people, there is no end of them. I sit on that damnable iron chair and listen to them complain until my mind is numb and my ass is raw. They all want something, money or land or justice. The lies they tell. And my lords and ladies are no better. I am surrounded by flatterers and fools. It can drive a man to madness, Ned. Half of them don't dare tell me the truth and the other half can't find it. There are nights I wish we had lost at the Trident. Ah, no, not truly, but... Dot, dot, dot. So yeah, he's, he's clearly chafing under these, these constraints that he has to fulfill as king of uh, Westeros. And he's also um, uh, explicitly wistful for the Eerie. Those were the good years, he says. And he, he bluntly wants to reindulge in those laddish, laddish interests. So, quote, Flowers everywhere, the markets bursting with food, the summer wine so cheap and so good that you can get drunk just breathing the air. Everyone is fat and drunk and rich. He laughed and slapped his own ample stomach a thump. And the girls, Ned, he exclaimed, his eyes sparkling. I swear, women lose all modesty in the heat. They swim naked in the river, right beneath the castle. Even in the street, it's too damn hot for wool or fur, so they go around in these short gowns. Silk if they have the silver and cotton if not, but it's all the same when they start sweating and their cloth sticks to their skin. They might as well be naked. The king laughed happily. So, girls and drinking and violence, as we find out about Robert as well. There's no football in Westeros, so I imagine... (laughs) <laughs> the the blood sport takes that spot but what's really interesting particularly in that quote as well as um his comments immediately preceding it is 
obviously the flower fields that he's hyping up and the fruit basket that he brought is not laddish behavior in any in any remote sense as neither is uh ned describing his best friend as a maiden's fancy which i think says more about ned's space <laughs> than anything else so there are obviously some clear divergences here from robert and the new lad I mean, he even says, I am planning to make you run the kingdom and fight the wars while, while I eat and drink and wench myself into an early grave. So we have this yearning for the boyish excess of the lad flick. But one of the other characteristics that Gil and Hanson Miller identify in these, in these films is this intense homosocial bonding um, often features ironized homophobia. So, you know, dialogue along the lines of no homo, but there's nothing wrong with that. So it's trying to... Be homophobic, but also seem not not to be. It's very it's very like one step in, one step out kind of thing. The homosocial intimacy in lad flicks as well as uh, bromances, they do carry emotional weight. Probably nothing on the on the level of the emotional weight being carried in in this chapter, but they are also strictly not sexual in uh, in that weighting, and that's part of why there is this ironized homophobia. So there is a clear cut boundary setting in these texts, whereas here it is perhaps something much more rich, I would say. Uh, I don't think that's a controversial statement. <laughs> um, there is definitely love between Ned and Robert, um, and I find that dynamic particularly interesting. Yeah, I I mean, I was fascinated reading or rereading um, kind of how Ned was internally taking in Robert for the first time since seeing him however it was like eight years ago ten years ago however long ago it was so uh, the first meeting uh, we are told that Robert seems almost a stranger um, and then that is until he vaulted off the back of his war horse with a familiar roar and crushed him in a bone crunching hug uh, Ned then notices how much Robert has changed. He was previously clean-shaven, clear-eyed, and muscled, as you say, like a maiden's fancy. Fantasy. <laughs> Calm down, Ned. <laughs> um, six and a half feet tall, he towered over lesser men, and when he donned his armor and the great antlered helmet of his house, he became a veritable giant. He'd had a giant strength, too, those days. The smell of leather and blood had clung to him like perfume. Now it was perfume that clung to him like perfume, and he had a girth to match his height. The king had gained at least eight stone, which I had to look up was 50 kilos. Um, a beard as coarse and black as iron wire covered his jaw to hide the double chin and the sag of the royal jowls, but nothing could hide his stomach and the dark circles under his eyes. So there's some kind of competing things that are happening in these descriptions. Uh, and I first of all want to acknowledge that part of what we're getting here is um, more general scene setting. So much like uh, one thing that when you were kind of reading out some quotes there before, Scott, one thing that I did not believe uh, Robert would actually, from what we know of Robert, would notice is um, how like the economic status of people changes what material clothing they can afford. I don't think he would necessarily be like, those, those people wear cotton and these people wear silk. I don't think that's something he would notice personally, but I think it does add to the atmosphere of the general um, seeing that we're getting and I think the the observation of the short dresses absolutely that is something that um, Robert would be noticing and here we're getting some this kind of tension body politics aside because we are going to unpack body, body politics in future episodes that's not something I'm unpacking in this episode but Ned has this very romantic view of his friend in his younger years and now he's seeing how much has changed so he's like really paying a lot of attention to um 
Robert's body and also Robert's body as an object of specifically female or maiden desire. And when I was reading this chapter, and we'll also get into the crypt scene in a bit because I think the crypt scene further cements this um, in some interesting ways, it read to me as though Ned was in love with Robert. And Robert wasn't necessarily in love with Ned. I could absolutely buy that they maybe used to have sex when they were younger, but Robert wasn't, like, didn't see it in the same way that Ned saw it, maybe. And now he's returning and Ned's kind of like, oh, it's my my old friend, but now I've got this different dynamic. We're both married, all that kind of thing. Um, I think there's room in the scene for that. Um, I think there's a interesting kind of tension between the homoeroticism of his descriptions, but also the hints at homophobia in terms of the you know now he he's got perfume clinging to him like this idea of like that's a very feminized um way to live your life is to use actual perfume as a man as opposed to before when you're a manly man and you're in the war and you smell like leather like that's what that's what a man should smell like obviously um but a lot of the the conversations between Robert and Ned are really marked by this kind of like real boisterous manly like friendly jovial Robert and the very quiet thoughtful Ned um so uh you know we've got the quote from Robert where he's just like if I hear your grace one more time I'll have your head in a spike we are more to each other than that and then Ned says in brackets quietly I had not forgotten Oh my God, how did I not pick up on that? (laughs) So, I mean, I want to unpack that a bit because I think like there is absolutely room to just read that like they were literally lovers and Ned's still in love with Robert. But I don't think that's, I mean, obviously that's not the only way to read that. And I think there's also ways to read queer intimacy between them without literally reading uh, a past sexual relationship. So to do that, I'm going to go back to this Foucault interview. So Foucault says... Between a man and a younger woman, the marriage institution makes it easier. She accepts it and makes it work. But two men of noticeably different ages, what code would allow them to communicate? They face each other without terms or convenient words, with nothing to assure them about the meaning of the movement that carries them towards each other. They have to invent from A to Z a relationship that is still formless, which is friendship. That is to say, the sum of everything through which they can give each other pleasure. One of the concessions one makes to others is not to present homosexuality as anything but a kind of immediate pleasure of two young men meeting in the street, seducing each other with a look, grabbing each other's asses and getting each other off in the quarter of an hour. There you have a neat image of homosexuality without any possibility of generating unease. And for two reasons, it responds to a reassuring canon of beauty and it cancels everything that can be troubling in affection, tenderness, friendship, fidelity, camaraderie and companionship. Things that are rather sanitized society can't allow a place for without fearing the formation of new alliances and the tying together of unforeseen lines of force. I think that's what makes homosexuality disturbing, the homosexual mode of life, much more than the sexual act itself. So I'm going to um, return to this in a little bit, but I think uh, what I want to emphasize with this is a couple of things. First of all, uh, back to that idea that particular institutions make forms of relationship legible, so... Um, I noted some very specific institutions, things like marriage and also professional um, relationships. And then also um, Scott has talked about some ways that we have scripts through modes like the light film to understand forms of friendship where maybe there aren't as many scripts outside of that. But also, you know, that real kind of specific thing that Foucault's talking about here, that it's actually kind of less 
disturbing is the way the word that he uses to imagine this like very specific brief sexual encounter than to imagine a prolonged much more um, intimate relationship between men that goes beyond the literal act of sex in the moment so I think that like I said I think you can make the argument that they probably did have a sexual relationship before that is Ned and Robert I don't think you need that kind of headcanon in order to read some really kind of intense queer intimacy between them and when I was reading this chapter there was one scene that just was ringing in my mind and I I had to send a video to Scott because I'm like you need to watch this so what this is Uh, And it's a scene from Ben-Hur, and specifically the scene of Masala reuniting with Ben-Hur. And according to screenwriter Gore Vidal, um, in The Celluloid Closet, which is a great documentary from the 90s, Vidal says that he had the idea that Masala and Ben-Hur would have been lovers when they were younger, and now they're reuniting, and Masala wants to start a relationship again, but Ben-Hur doesn't, so Masala's motivation in the film is that of a spurred lover. Uh, And Vidal claims that Stephen Boyd, who played Masala, was instructed to act with this backstory in mind, but nobody told Charlton Heston because he's Charlton Heston. (laughs) Um, But when you watch this scene, and I do, if you don't, if you're not familiar with Ben-Hur, I encourage you to watch this scene. You absolutely get this sense of Masala just being so in love with Ben-Hur. And it's so much like the crypt scene. Yeah, I haven't actually seen the film Ben-Hur at all, but even just watching that scene um, on YouTube, it's just dripping in it. It's dripping in that tension between the two, and I love it. And it actually made me really want to go and watch the film. I think you're absolutely correct in that it resonates so strongly um, with the reunion of Ned and, and Robert as well. Um, it would not surprise me at all if Martin had that scene in mind when he was writing that chapter um, and then it being realised in the show as well. It's just such a great scene too. I, I just love the the staginess of some of the interactions. Um, you mentioned something about how in classic Hollywood it's still trying to figure out itself and distinguish itself from theatre conventions. But I do love it um, when you go back and you watch and you see that sort of grappling come out on screen um, and there's some really great stagey moments in it that just emphasise that tension, that, that lover's tension, the tension between the power dynamic, um, him being the Roman and he being the, the Jew in Jerusalem. Oh, I just need to see this film. It's because of that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't want to disappoint you from memory. It has been a long time since I've seen it. I was basically a child when I last saw it, but I do feel like that scene might be oh, the best no. part of the film. It's a, it's a, oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> very, um, you know, larger than life, 50s, like one of those real dramatic, um, yeah. <laughs> There's a few films like that from that era. Um, so I guess reading this chapter, I was interested in the ways that um, – Ned and Robert's love for each other, however you conceive that love to be, is really mediated through very particular, um, more socially appropriate contexts. So we've got uh, this idea of war in particular. So, you know, as you say, that as uh, Robert is reflecting on how he has sometimes nights where he wished that he had lost to the trident, but not really. And then we get, I understand, Ned said softly. Robert looked at him. I think you do. If so, you were the only one, my old friend. And then we also get romanticization of the the youth that they shared together. So 
uh, you know, those years we spent in the Erie. Gods, those were good years. I want you at my side again, Ned. I want you down at King's Landing, not up here at the end of the world where you're no damn use to anybody. Robert also, when he's bribing Ned, um, in a way that really makes you wonder, like, how well Robert really knows Ned, uses these bribes of food and alcohol and women, this way of, like, you know, this is a, a proxy, an external pleasure that they can share love through as opposed to just you know expressing love to each other without these kind of proxies so to return to Foucault Foucault says there is a book that just appeared in the U.S. on the friendships between women and Foucault's um, referring to Lillian Federman's Surpassing the Love of Men the affection and passion between women is well documented in the preface the author states that she began with the idea of unearthing homosexual relationships but perceived that not only were these relationships not always present but that it was uninteresting whether relationships could be called homosexual or not. And by letting the relationship manifest itself as it appeared in words and gestures, other very essential things also appeared. Dense, bright, marvellous loves and affections, or very dark and sad loves. The book shows the extent to which women's, or woman's body has played a great role, and the importance of physical contact between women. Women do each other's hair, help each other with makeup, dress each other, Women have access to the bodies of other women. They put their arms around each other, kiss each other. Man's body has been forbidden to other men in a much more drastic way. And we might also think about here the um, the first shot we see of Renly and Loras in uh, Game of Thrones is of Loras shaving Renly. And there's uh, even without their dialogue, there is uh, a very apparent intimacy that goes beyond friendship when you see that scene. Yeah. So to continue... If it's true that life between women was tolerated, it's only in certain periods and since the 19th century that life between men not only was tolerated, but rigorously necessary. Very simply, during war and equally in prison camps, you had soldiers and young officers who spent months and even years together. During World War I, men lived together completely, one on top of another, and for them it was nothing at all, insofar as death was present and... Finally, the devotion to one another and the services rendered were sanctioned by the play of life and death. And apart from several remarks on camaraderie, the brotherhood of spirit and some very partial observations, what do we know about these emotional uproars and storms of feelings that took place in those times? One can wonder how, in these absurd and grotesque wars and infernal massacres, the men managed to hold on in spite of everything, through some emotional fabric, no doubt. I don't mean that it was because they were each other's lovers and they continued to fight, but honour, courage, not losing face, sacrifice, leaving the trench with the captain, all that implied a very intense emotional tie. It's not to say, ah, there you have homosexuality. I detest that kind of reasoning. But no doubt you have there one of the conditions, not the only one, that has permitted the infernal life where for weeks guys floundered in the mud and shit amongst corpses, starving for food, and were drunk the morning of the assault. So when I say that I believe Ned was in love with Robert, I don't mean to suggest that I'm simply reading an unspoken homosexual love story between them. Uh, Although, like I said, there is plenty of space in the text for that reading. Instead, I would say that there is an undeniable intimacy and desire between Robert and Ned that even today, 40 years after Foucault's interview, we still don't have many scripts for um, outside of contexts like war. At least um, I'm speaking from the you know Western contexts through which that we have come to be introduced to A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. And this awkwardness and discomfort um, comes through in striking ways in the relationship between Ned and Robert. Their relationship in war was much easier to read uh, in a narrative than the love they share now. 
uh, which then has to become mediated through the memory of war and the memory of being brothers together with Robert Aaron, or the shared love they have for a single woman, Liana. We have less of a script for that desire and love um, and what that might look like between these two men who now as are adults. Robert instead introduced new ways for them to continue their relationship, both through shared pleasures they can partake down south, uh, and more importantly, through the institutionalized relationship between the king and his hand. So without this institution, Robert and Ned lack a script for their relationship. They're not at war. They don't have actual sex with each other, at least as far as we're seeing on the pages. And I believe that Robert, particularly as a man who is very much attached, as we will discuss in great detail in future episodes, to toxic masculinity, I don't think Robert is very well equipped to navigate a relationship with another man. Yeah, it's interesting to me how we had that particular reading of Robert Baratheon in the show that was fairly entrenched in toxic masculinity, but here in the book we're getting... A bit more dimensionality to it which is going to be very interesting to explore going forward um, and I think another way in which it's not so straightforwardly characterized for either character is in the way that they are relatively open with each other about their grief and being in grief or grieving in each other's presence. Robert especially seems to not have much inhibition in expressing his sorrow about Liana to, to Eddard or displaying it. You mentioned body politics and now we're going to get into a lot of it going forward throughout um, this series but um, when it comes to Robert uh, his grief has clearly manifested and evolved to a point where not only has it ruined his marriage and distorted his memory of Liana as a person, you know, the idealizing she was more beautiful than that. He sees her likeness in the crypt. Um, but it also has physically manifested in his appearance as well. So despite these troubling and unhealthy dimensions to Robert's grief. Nevertheless, it remains uncommon to see a character like this be comfortable in expressing that vulnerability to another man. Again, especially given that Robert is otherwise fairly typical of hegemonic masculinities in many ways, particularly his younger self. And I do think it's ironic that Robert uh, comments on Lysa not bearing her grief well. I mean, boy, pot and kettle there. (laughs) (laughs) There is an interesting parallel in how Robert is incapable of recognizing or dealing with who Liana was in reality. And we will get more of that later. Um, I think it's very clear that Robert was more invested in that relationship than Liana or had a bit more rose tinted glasses <laughs> on what that marriage would have ended up as. And there's a parallel between that and how Ned struggles to recognize that Robert, the Robert that he remembers is not who he is in reality anymore. Both in their own way cling to how things were before the war. And I think it has tragic consequences for both. Um, And that is how I read that omen that we see in Bran 1. Um, It's the mutually fatal consequences of this relationship and, and this particular form of denialism between the two of them. But... I mean, I say they're relatively open to grieving in each other's presence. Obviously, there's some caveats with that. And one of them is that there is a, obviously a very significant barrier for Ned in being able to fully share his grief. And that is, you know, um, the the abyss that's in the shape of Jon Snow. Even though I would say this male friendship is more open than most in sharing grief, there is still a poignant limit for Ned. It is an aspect of his grief that he cannot share with anyone except Howland Reed, um, who is not someone he sees every day. And we don't really get an insight into what that friendship is like either yet uh, in the books. 
So obviously this is also unhealthy, um, although understandable from Ned, given Ned's position here, um, but I do find it quite upsetting and tragic. He shares and commiserates where and when he can, but there is always that inhibition anchored in protecting Jon Snow. So, so it's not fully released. And then we get quite a few clues um, pointing to R plus L equals J. Uh, in this first Ned chapter, um, we, we have the dead roses in Lyanna's lap. Quote, I was with her when she died, Ned reminded the king. She wanted to come home to rest beside Brandon and father. He could hear still at times. Promise me, she had cried in a room that smelled of blood and roses. Promise me, Ned. The fever had taken a strength and her voice had been faint as a whisper. But when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes. Ned remembered the way she had smiled then. How tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life. The rose petals spilling from her palm, dead and black. After that, he remembered nothing. They had found him still holding her body, silent with grief. The little Cranach man, Howland Reed, had taken her hand from his. Ned could recall none of it. I bring her flowers when I can, he said. Liana was fond of flowers. So, obviously, I mean, the narrative we have that Robert espouses, particularly when it comes to Liana and Rhaegar, is that Rhaegar kidnapped and raped her. More than enough clues here that that is not actually the accurate take on what happened. I mean, not to say that a rapist can't be fucked up enough to rape someone and then leave flowers, but I think particularly when it comes to Ned acknowledging that she was fond of flowers directly after reading that description suggests that, that was, they were in fact gifts um, from Rhaegar. And then we also got Ned's silence when, when Robert is expressing his ongoing hatred for Rhaegar and wanting to kill him a thousand times more. So I think going back and rereading, you can sense an element there where Eddard is less hateful of Rhaegar. Now, Eddard is profoundly scarred by his experiences at war, which, I, which is something I deeply appreciate about his character. And so the Not A Cast podcast also raised a really good point in that Ned's trauma and his repressed memories of the war is sparked in intensity by Robert's presence and then heading south closer towards where all this played out. This is not actually Ned's normal headspace. Repressed is an important word here too, as it, it is clear from Ned's thoughts that Liana's death was so upsetting to him that he loses himself and has no actual re recollection of the moments after she passed away. I think we will unpack this more in a few episodes time, particularly when it comes to um, the important details of Ashara Dane and Arthur Dane. I think there's a hell of a lot more going on at the Tower of Joy that makes it this traumatic moment for Ned beyond just the fact that his sister passed away, which is traumatic enough. But it's clear from the repression of these memories that Ned buries his grief and tries to mitigate any potential memory triggers. So he's kind of like self-disciplined himself into repressing this memory as well. And we see that also in how he reacts to the whispers about Ashara Dane that appear in Cat 2. Um, he silences them, which is not something we're used to hearing Ned doing. He's very keen to, to quash all this and to bury this, uh, any of these potential triggers for uh, I mean memory as well as truth um, for anyone else and that is also metaphorically realized in the crypt as well um, he he's buried his sister beneath the surface whereas Robert meanwhile believes that she should be on the surface fully on display uh, on a pedestal just like he has allowed his own grief to sort of shape him on a surface level as well so Ned externalizes his grief by bucking tradition and having the likenesses of his sister and brother carved in the crypt. 
uh, as opposed to just his father. So as Karen Till, a memory studies scholar, writes, social memory and placemaking activities tell us more about the people building a memorial than the peoples and pasts being commemorated. So I can imagine in a thousand years time when Westeros has disappeared and it's all modern society and modernity has happened and we have archaeologists running around that one of them might unearth Winterfell's crypt and see this difference and immediately recognize that there's something else going on here, some sort of shift. And there'll be plenty of theory crafting about what this means, why these specific people have their likenesses carved whilst, you know, 8,000 years worth of um, Stark generations only had the Lords um, carved into stone. <laughs> I look forward to theory crafting a little bit more about what a modern society that replaces <laughs> Westeros would think about all the remains left behind so before we wrap up this episode speaking of the topic of grief and also relationships between men and boys in this specific case i'm about to talk about a very different kind of relationship some of you might have seen that we recently reworked our patreon tiers um, and specifically the benefits for the patreon tiers so we now have In addition to our Little Birds episodes that are for anyone who donates any amount to Patreon, we also have a specific um, extra bonus content that is just for the top tier, our Sansa level (laughs) patrons. So basically this tier will be that occasionally we will have an extra episode that is generally on something that is different to A Song of Ice and Fire, not uh, dissimilar to maybe some of the episodes that we used to do on Trope Watchers before it transformed into uh, a show where we brought on guests. We've decided that the first episode, uh, and it probably won't be for a little while, but the first episode that we will be releasing just to our top tier patrons will be on the video game God of War and specifically um, the relationship between Kratos and his son and also Kratos's relationship with his uh, deceased wife and that's not not a spoiler she's dead at the beginning of the the game <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about what that means but yeah i very we've had a lot of conversations about how i feel about that game i, I love that game um <laughs> it came from a series where i enjoyed the mechanics and then it gave me a good story which i was not <laughs> expecting in god of war uh but uh, i adored it. it was the favorite game i played that year so we will eventually have an exclusive episode just about that yeah that is a very solid recommendation from Mia. I did play through that game earlier this year and it is as good as she says it is. Um, I had no relationship with the God of War franchise before that particular game, which is kind of like a quasi-reboot of it, shifting in genre but also in seriousness of its storytelling. And I think there are some really interesting commonalities but also differences between its representation of um, male intimacy given that it's a father-son dynamic, not a brotherly or friendship thing, as well as the way in which it represents grief. But also, you know, I mean, both both games also have their dead women's club. Uh, <laughs> we have the dead the dead mother in God of War. We have Lyanna Stark, as well as Ashara Dane, as we'll talk about in a few episodes' time as well. Yeah, so that's going to be very interesting to explore alongside A Song of Ice and Fire, for sure. That's it for this chapter. We'll be back soon for a Game of Thrones chapter 5 through 7, John 1, Catelyn 2, and Arya 1. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. 
If you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of A Clash of Critics, be sure to tune into our flagship podcast, Trope Watchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics, and you can email us at A Clash of Critics at gmail.com. See you next time.